Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Recovery Corner. Very excited to be kicking off season two. And you might be watching us now that we are officially on YouTube and you can view our show, uh, our mugs and our guests uh, now that we're up on YouTube. So hopefully you're taking advantage of this new feature. Uh, as always, I'm Candace Rose. I am your host and I have my co-host here with me. What's going on, Candace? It's me, Jesse Hayner. You finally see the face and all the gingerness, and I'm glad to be here with you guys today. Favorite face, favorite face. <laughs> um, but yeah, as you can see, we have a full house today. So uh, um, on today's episode of Recovery Corner, uh, we are going to be discussing recovery-ready communities through the lens of young people in recovery. Yes. Uh, YPR has developed a blueprint that outlines the continuum of care and the resources needed to ensure the best chance for individuals to have a sustainable recovery experience. So today we have Miss Tara Mosley-Hyde, Renisha Rudder, and Daniel Durkin McKeever, who are all recent graduates from the American University uh, based out of Washington, D.C., and these wonderful women conducted a policy analysis of the YPR blueprint with the support of American, excuse me, American University's public administration and policy graduate program. So they're here to share with us their findings. Welcome to the show, ladies. Let's uh, start with some introductions. Uh, Tara, we'll start with you. Welcome back to the show. You were with us season one. Uh, yeah, season one. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey everyone, uh, my name is Tara Mosley Hyde and I am uh, the Vice President of Programs at Young People in Recovery. Uh, I'm also a recent graduate whoop, whoop, from the American University, Go Eagles, um, and um, working along with uh, these fine women here. And I will pass it off to Danielle. Nice. Hey there. So I'm Danielle Durkin McKeever. Um, I live in the capital district of New York. I'm about 20 minutes north of Albany. I currently work at the New York State Department of Health as a senior program specialist in the Bureau of Program Implementation Enrollment um, within the Division of Health Plan Contracting and Oversight. So I directly work on healthcare insurance policy issues, communications, as well as state and federal legislative activity. My work directly involves with Medicaid managed care. Uh, managed care is a healthcare delivery system that's aimed to give guided health services to people with the most complex conditions. And a large chunk of the population are people with substance use disorders. Um, so I'm gonna pass it off to Renisha, uh, another recent grad of American University. Nice. Thank you, Danielle. Um, so as Tara and Danielle stated, we are classmates. We worked on this uh, project together as our practicum and um, graduated from the American University recently back in August. Um, my current role, I am a digital inclusion coordinator at a Southeastern Indiana Regional Planning Commission, which is stationed in Versailles, Indiana. It's a little um, cute little quaint town in Indiana. Um, de definitely different than what I'm used to growing up. I'm originally from Louisville. So um, it is 
been great so far meeting the people in the communities that I live in and work in right now. I'm really excited about this fellowship, um, trying to bring uh, broadband infrastructure and digital inclusion uh, inclusion to the regions. Um, it's pretty rural where I am um, and or semi-rural in other parts. And it's really important because we need to close this digital divide this, you know, when people don't have access to internet, um, you know, they miss out on its internet is, is largely becoming less of a luxury and more of a necessity. So, you know, we think less, yes, we, we like to have internet for gaming and entertainment, but we also, as we learned through the pandemic, need it for schooling, for learning, or for instance, like this connection to communities and resources that, uh, you know, we need to be able for lifestyle uh, important. So I'm really excited to be working on this initiatives and also very excited to be on this podcast today. Well, thank you, ladies. I'm really excited to have you all on the show and just really appreciate the work that you've put into analyzing the YPR blueprint. Uh, it's such a good blueprint. I'm excited to share about it more. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and especially just having allies, you know, individuals who just support the recovery movement, doing what you can, because, you know, as we all know, addiction impacts more than just the person experiencing it. So uh, hats off to you ladies for really putting your um, best foot forward to help be solution makers in this whole realm of recovery. Thank you. You can try. <laughs> we try. Heck yeah. You know, you guys had a, uh, we're, we'll talk about your policy analyst and I, I went over it and I was like, this is really, really good. And I definitely want to get into that. Um, I was like, who wrote this? And it was, it was our <laughs> guests. I was like, this is great. So uh, hats off, kudos to you guys. Thank you. Um, way to represent, um, you know, and, you know, especially with allies of recovery and people in long-term recovery, um, just to, you know, a broad spectrum and, and attacking the things from all ends. So good stuff, good work. Um, we'll get into that. Um, but first, we're gonna have a few questions for you guys and we'll definitely bounce off each other and, and, and uh, get some more insight from all three of you. And, uh, but first and foremost, uh, I'll just start with Tara. Um, you know, a lot of this stuff is um, also YPR based and driven, I guess you could say, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but can you explain, you know, for YPR um, standards, what recovery ready community is? Sure. So um, the YPR uh, ready, the right YPR recovery ready blueprint uh, was, yes, <laughs> uh, was established uh, a few years ago when um, we were actually asked to speak in front of Congress and um, among a variety of other things, um, Young People in Recovery has been around since 2010 and through all of the different services that we had established uh, at the organization, um, we kind of learned that um, working in silos doesn't work, right? Uh, so it's important and vital to have a, a variety and, uh, of options and support mechanisms in place in order for someone to sustain long-term recovery. Um, and thrive in their recovery, right? Like we're not talking about like people just coming in um, and, um, and and just finding themselves and then that's it, right? We're talking about like empowering them to their goals, their dreams, their ambitions, like what's going on? What can we do to really support you to thrive in your recovery? 
Um, and in some of those things, you know, we uh, sat down with a lot of really smart people uh, that I <laughs> had never got the privilege of meeting yet. Uh, I'm sure I probably will one day. Um, but these individuals had concluded that uh, in order for someone to sustain and um, thrive in their recovery, they need um, eight different things that we had identified, which are the following prevention, uh, access to prevention programs, access to treatment, harm reduction, judicial and law enforcement uh, programs that support those uh, those spaces, uh, as well as access to housing, equitable housing, right? So housing that um, meets the individual where they are rather than what we'd say that they need to be. Um, education, so folks that are continuing their education, whether that be something um, like getting their GED or if they're trying to you know, get a, a graduate uh, degree or, or go into that sort of programming, um, as well as employment um, and uh, recovery support just holistically. Uh, so it was determined that these are kind of like the, the staples in the community that need to be established in order for that person to not only one, um, find recovery, right? Uh, because that's very important. Um, and, and, you know, prevention is also a really great tool, um, you know, just to kind of one, introduce people to um, um, not abstinence necessarily, but to showcase that, you know, you don't have to like use alcohol as a social lubricant, among other things. Um, so, you know, like having an established um, space for that and then having access to treatment, um, because, you know, that that is is a constant need across the country. Um, but, you know, again, uh, this blueprint was established to kind of showcase like the the staple of the the at minimum what we need to see are access to resources in all of these spaces. Because if you, you can't have um, um, the recovery thriving without these things, right? Uh, so without access to harm reduction, without access to education, right? You can't have people thriving and you can't have community thriving without access to these things. Um, so that's um, what the blueprint pretty much showcases is the need for these things. And then it also goes into a deeper step of what sort of um, resources that are uh, that we suggest really that um, go into each of these spaces. Um, so prevention is more like implementation of evidence-based uh, prevention curricula. Treatment is just the availability of different uh, treatment models, whether that's 12-step based and um, abstinence or medicated-assisted treatment or recovery, um, equine therapy, uh, artistic therapy, men and women centers, you know, a variety of different things. Harm reduction, community first responders, uh, good Samaritan laws, access to uh, safe consumption, uh, supplies, uh, among other things. Again, uh, judicial and law enforcement. Um, this is more like access to treatment courts, recovery courts, um, or, you know, uh, utilizing treatment over incarceration um, yeah. is, is a big one, um, especially, um, you know, to be um, um, more uh, inclusive of different, different demographics uh, across the country. Uh, housing also, uh, housing first uh, coalitions, uh, as well as like, you know, mommy and me and daddy and me programs um, for folks that are in recovery that have children um, and or married, right? Because I mean, just because you're married doesn't mean that, you know, you both can't find recovery at the same time. Uh, traditionally speaking, it's always been, you know, you have to be one and then the other one has to, you know, and, and we know that that's not, you know, the best and most efficient way for folks to, to find recovery, right? 
Um, so again, and I think, you know, the more that I kind of dig into this and scrape off the surface, you kind of see the, the reason and the need and the why, right. The right. why of, of, of this blueprint, um, because mm-hmm. we can't, we cannot have a society, um, thriving without the access to all of these resources. Um, and I think that we, we can really see, you know, across the country. And I think, you know, a lot of us will, will speak to some of the data that we discovered and uncovered through our analysis, just, you know, what it means when this isn't available, right? Um, and that's kind of what our analysis showcases is, um, you know, would these models work? Um, and if they are working, how are they working? Or what does the data show? Does it show that it doesn't work? Does it show that it's not available? What does that mean? Um, right. So again, and that's and that's kind of the, the blueprint um, that we have established is just all of those resources uh, among those eight pillars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love I love all the eight pillars that are identified in this blueprint because um, it is you know like there's not one path for any one person to or everybody's needs are different you know like speaking from experience I didn't necessarily need treatment for myself um, but I did need like supportive housing. Right. Um, and same for other folks, like, um, they may have a good job, uh, but you know, they need better recovery support, making sure that it's like accessible to everybody too. Cause it can be like, I could live in a community where there's six treatment centers, but they're $30,000 a month, <laughs> you know, like that's not equitable to everybody. I couldn't no. afford that. I mean, most people can't. Um, so it's not only like having these conversations about like, these are sort of the eight core components that some people may have, you know, access to some of them, um, but they need others. Uh, but also making sure again, that it's like equitable to everybody too. Uh, I know Medicaid has recently like started being uh, billable for inpatient services, yeah. um, but that's still like, you know, not every treatment center is billing Medicaid yet. So there's like all right. these different components. Like it's such a big, issue, but at least having these conversations so that communities are aware that like, these are kind of the eight things that you want in your community. If you want folks to thrive in recovery and then how do we get there? That's a bigger, that's a bigger issue, uh, which kind of leads me to our next question is like, so as far as the policy analysis of this recovery ready blueprint, what was the motive behind the policy analysis? And I don't know who was most comfortable. Maybe um, I can like is ready to go. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I can answer that. Um, I feel like we all, first of all, we are not experts. Um, we are, we were just grad students. And so first that was our first and foremost was to present this as kind of like a literature review of the studies that, you know, that are done by experts in in this field and on these subjects um, to present what they have found. That was first and foremost, um, you know, our top motivation there. And then also to apply it to the blueprint, um, the recovery ready communities blueprint and saying, okay, if YPR says, you know, in their own experience and their own findings, that this is what it will take to make communities um, ready to be able to support people in recovery, 
Um, and then here's evidence that is also suggesting that, you know, what we're saying is right or that there needs to be more studying done. Um, then here is here is that report on that. So that was it. And then also, of course, you know, we want to be able to reach people. We want to get people um, thinking and ready to have discussions over this topic, over what solutions are there already, what solutions we have yet to um, implement or have yet to think of. You know, what are we, what are we missing? Who are we leaving out? What do we need uh, to be doing better to help people in recovery, um, enter in recovery and stay in recovery and how to help um, our society as a whole, you know, also support these people, know what to do to support it, know what damages that that process and how not to do those things anymore. So um, quite a few different, um, um, you know, things that we were we were trying to achieve there, but um, hope, you know, just hopefully that number one, we get the we present the evidence that we're finding from the actual experts um and that we get people discussing what you know this topic and what needs to be done and what can be done absolutely and I, I love um i was going to point out before after tara was talking um the same 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 topic you know i love you know tara you said the word continuum it's like uh there's a bad stigma today uh nationally and worldwide of what recovery is I think there's a stigma on when you tell somebody, oh, I'm in long-term recovery, they automatically think, oh, you go to those rooms, right? Or you go to the, you sit in that circle, right? When recovery is so much more uh, than that 12-step model, right? And I'm not knocking 12-step, I'm a 12-step person. That's, that's what I do. That's my flavor. It's worked for me, right? And I've done other things as well. But I think this continuum that you guys talk about with different models of recovery, and Terry, you listed a plethora that's right. I'm using big words today on the podcast. A plethora of um, different different forms of recovery. It is mat treatment. It is harm reduction. It is uh, inpatient. It is social. Right. It is equity. It is housing. It is education. So it's like I, I get really uh, you know I don't want to say bent, but for lack of a better word, uh, recovery is just so much more than just the rooms, right? And so we want to make sure we reach that on a high level. We're talking you know, Sigma campaigns, politicians, police officers, first responders, that no recovery is a continuum. And like Tara talked about, so you can elaborate if you guys want, um, or if, if Danielle, if you want to add anything to what Renisha was saying, please, please go ahead. Hit that mute. I darn you, button. There you go. Um, welcome I, welcome I to Zoom. Will wanted to mention that I am a very proud and supportive ally to all people in recovery. Um, alcoholism runs very deeply in my family. My father was an alcoholic. He developed liver and pancreatic cancer. He later passed from the cancer caused by the disease. My brother is on the path to recovery. He's been sober for four years. A very close friend of mine um, he's been sober for about 15 years and he still attends weekly meetings and he will always attend his weekly meetings. And I'm, I'm very passionate about giving support, definitely the knowledge sharing, but also really defending that definition that substance use disorder is a disease. It's not something that you choose to have. And I think that's the 
biggest obstacle is this stigma that people feel that it is a choice to be this way or you you have that choice but when it's hereditary and even though I'm not in recovery I can see myself at many times falling into mm-hmm. a type of path that my family has gone into so I you know I have to be aware and conscious. So I, I truly believe it's a disease. Doctors believe it's a disease. So I'm defending that definition. Well, thanks. Like, thanks for, you know, being vulnerable and sharing that about your family. And I think that really highlights that addiction impacts uh, the whole community. It's rare that you meet somebody that doesn't know somebody or is somewhat closely connected to another individual that has experienced substance use disorder, whether it's family, friend, or an employer, an employee, uh, it seems to be like two degrees of separation. And so uh, really just shedding light on like our communities need to work together. And I also will say that I have, don't have enough experience with someone that isn't um, on a path from alcohol. I don't have experience with uh, a family member, someone close suffering from substance use from like recreational drugs or, you know, something else along those lines. But I can only imagine how much harder it is since, you know, there's no heroin bars. There are bars where you go where it's it's in their face at all times it's in restaurants it's now being served in starbucks like you cannot escape it and how is someone supposed to stay where they are when all of it's like advertisements in their face all the time Mm -hmm. i i can't imagine what that person must feel right you know danielle that it's so crazy that you bring that up because that reminds me a lot of um when I was doing the research on the education section of um of our paper with the uh high school recovery communities and the collegiate recovery communities and just that one of the books that I had read was talking so much about how alcohol as a culture is so normalized in um probably western society but they you know we'll just specify the United States because we don't <laughs> I don't have an experience in another country outside of the U.S. so I'm not sure how it is in Europe but you know for U.S. it is it's it's like almost like a rite of passage you know that you go you're expected almost to even though your parents discourage you from it but when you're in high school you're expected kind of to go to those crazy parties well they'll be underage drinking you're expected when you get to college to go whether you're actually of age to drink or not you're still expected to go to those college parties where there's going to be heavy drinking and so yeah you're so right it is all in your face and how do we support you know not just it's bad enough of a problem for the people who um, maybe haven't identified whether they're in, you know, in need of a recovery lifestyle, you know, um, but also for the people who have identified that they're in, in need of a recovery lifestyle or trying to, to live that out and just have that shoved in their face all the time as they're mm-hmm. trying to be a part of a community. Because let's, fi- let's face it, peer pressure 
is so effective. We try, you know, we tell kids, oh, don't give in to peer pressure, but that's just kind of who we, that's how we're wired as humans. We, you know, we, we communicate to each other about what we expect from not from one another, you know, verbally or non-verbally through peer pressure. And so if somebody is in, you know, a community that is not, that is not recovery friendly and yeah, they're going to feel that pressure, even if nobody is overtly telling them that they need to engage in that, they're still going to feel that pressure. And how do we, how do we stop that, you know, and, and help them, be able to feel like they're accepted no matter what and mm-hmm. at what point in recovery that they're in. And also stop um, pushing that, you know, for <laughs> as, <laughs> as yeah. something that, you know, you need to be, you need to engage in to be considered a normal human being in this country. Um, just, just to piggyback a little bit on when I was a waitress, we were told to push alcohol sales all mm-hmm. the time. Like, appetizer you talk about this drink entree you talk about this drink dessert you talk about those after dinner drinks and it's like why do we have to keep talking about if they want to have a drink they will Mm -hmm. order one we don't have to keep throwing it in their face every time yeah it's just this you know it's this culture that we just have to keep yeah our culture uh, some of the things you were talking about earlier was reminding me of like uh, just how in your face it is. I think a couple of years ago, I was out at um, like Walgreens or something shopping for a Mother's Day card and they had this big plastic wine glass that you could fit a whole bottle in the cup. And it said, because mom it ain't easy. And I was like, why are we encouraging this behavior? Like, why can't it say like, I need to drink all this water? Cause that's probably what we really need. You know, <laughs> it's like a giant glass of water. Uh, uh, as a, as a new mom, I tell you, <laughs> um, all of the, the, the memes and things that I see, like the, the, mom and or the, the wine and sip and yoga or like, you know, and I'm like, it How makes sense. can that be like good for you? <laughs> like I just, you know, and, and, and like, I'm not trying to bash people who, who engage in drinking or socially drink right. or whatever. Like that's, you know, I, I'm fine. You know, I'm a person in recovery and I'm proud to be in recovery uh, for, you know, just over 10 years. Um, and, you know, thank goodness uh, for me and, and, and my life and my family. Um, and, you know, I choose not to engage in, in drinking among, you know, other, you know, substances. However, um, you know, folks may need those, uh, you know, things for themselves. Um, but I just don't think that, you know, circling recreational activities is probably the best thing to do uh, around alcohol, you know, um, and alcohol consumption. Um it's just, you know, cause you're, you're basic, you're, you're pairing a healthy activity with something that's really not healthy. Alcohol is not healthy. Um, you can't argue with that hard right. stop, right? Like alcohol literally is poison. Like that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it, kudos to the, to the winemakers and to, to all those people that do that. Um, you know, and, and, you know, there's people that, that do that, uh, for fun that just want to like taste, have wine tastings, which is great. Um, but I just think that, you know, just because I'm a mom doesn't mean that I need to go have wine and do yoga. Um, it is hard. I mean, 
wine wine gulping <laughs> i don't know Right. I, I just don't understand it though. I mean, it is because, you know, and then, and then just as a, as a, another highlighted point to, to Renesha uh, and, a, and a tipping of the hat about uh, education and, and creating these spaces, you know, in my community, they're burying a student who just died of binge drinking at a local university, you know, like last week, I heard of that. Uh, I read you know, that. because That's of so binge sad. drinking. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that, that Freshman, was just right? the news, like just the other day. Uh, I'm sorry. It was a freshman, right? Or a sophomore. It was, it was, yeah. At a a fraternity, um, at a local university. And, you know, now he, his life is lost and cut short, you know, um, as a result of that. So, you know, and that just goes, you know, again, like it just continuing, uh, and you talked about, um, peer pressure. And I just want to, I want to take a step back because there is another way, right? Um, and, and I'm a big pusher and advocate of this. Like there is a, th- a thing called positive peer pressure, right? Um, and I was a big advocate for that, right? I was in community college um, because I, you know, needed some additional steps and support uh, coming into college. And, um, you know, I would ask, I, I'd ask plenty of, of fraternity and sorority folk and, and my, my peers and everybody that I encountered, because uh, I didn't care. It didn't matter to me if you were in recovery or not. I mean, for those that were in recovery, great if you came and, and, and had fun with us and went to our, our fun events. Um, but even better, if you weren't in recovery, you wouldn't even hang out, you know? Um, just cause I needed like people and support and, you know, so mm-hmm. we invited just everybody and anybody to come and, and hang out, play ultimate glow in the dark Frisbee, um, at the waterfront, uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. And, you know, that was the thing, you know, mm-hmm. um, that was life. And, um, you know, we had so many people that would just come, just wanted to have fun, you know, not drink, not don't engage in alcohol, but, you know, just come play frisbee and join the sport and go home you know go to school the next day that's a great um, point to, like- uh, that's a great point is that to and be inclusive because sometimes when you say oh, it's a recovery event they say oh i'm not in recovery i'm excluded i think people we want you to come we want if you're not in recovery and you want to have a good time come out and have a good time i think you brought up a really yeah. valid, valid point you know we had a bowling mm-hmm. night we had uh, we had people who were not in long-term recovery come and they had a great time. So sorry to sidebar you just wanted to. No, and that's, I think that that's a great, I think that that's a great sidebar. Honestly. Um, I think that's a great point to add on to there. And it just, it, the thought ran through my mind, like as Tara was speaking, just, you know, as an ally, which, which I am I'm not a person in recovery. I am ally. I have friends who have um, struggled with substance use and are currently, you know, in recovery. And my, my best friend, she's been in recovery for, I think about seven years now. Um, so, you know, it's like, as a person who doesn't have that struggle, I think sometimes it is, you know, I have to do a better job of being aware of um, when I might inadvertently be creating or putting my friends in recovery into situations or inviting them into situations that are not supportive and might make them, um, you know, maybe uncomfortable. Um, I know because honestly, to not have that struggle is a privilege, you know, we, and, and it, you, in any kind of 
in all relationships, really, you need to be aware of how, you know, what privileges you have and how that may affect um, the relationship that you have with others and how that affects your perspective that you have with others. And so for me, you know, I think as an ally with family, with friends who are in recovery, you know, we, or other, you know, other other allies out there, we should think like, you know, what is it that we're taking for granted, um, you know, that we don't have with the struggle and where, where are we privileged? Recognize those. And the fact that, you know, we can just go to these, you know, just out in the public and not feel stressed over that and not feel pressured and not, you know, whatever the struggle is. And can we change our thinking? You know, does everything have to be centered around alcohol? No. And should we feel like, you know, something is being left out if alcohol is not included in that event or, you know, that that fun uh, thing that we're doing? No. Um, and how can we be more supportive for people, um, you know, who do, who do live in recovery and, um, you know, make sure that we're not, again, adding any undue stress and just kind of be more aware as a society, I think. Yeah. yeah. Tara, what were you saying before I just blatantly cut you off? No, you're great. You're great. I think this is a great conversation. I think actually that kind of is a great segue right into our policy because that's exactly all of the, the pieces that we were highlighting um, in, in our analysis are like how, you know, do these components and, and the pillars in the, the recovery ready blueprint, how does that fit into society to really help elevate and celebrate um, recovery um, and, and help folks to uh, enhance their recovery experience and thrive, right? And our communities thrive. Um, you know, so, and I can talk a little bit about uh, the area that I focused in. Um, so uh, for, for the analysis, we each kind of took, um, we, we only ended up analyzing um, four pillars. And that was because, as you guys can imagine, and as we kind of like discussed earlier, um, the eight pillars are a lot. Um, there's a you lot of pieces. You would still be working on them. Of- <laughs> you would still be working on them today if you took eight right. pillars. So good job on the four. Exactly. Well, like, yeah, just, yeah. yeah, this whole season two like is just going to be us talking about this policy analysis because there's, yeah. I mean, look, at, we haven't even hardly gotten started. We just like tip of the iceberg and look at our conversation yeah. like, this is a big topic, so. Uh, oh, I'm holding back, by the way. My brain is going 30 different directions. So this is this is Jesse holding back. So you're welcome. So continue. Yeah, no, and that's, and that's so true though, right? Because there are so many pieces that kind of fall under each of those pillars that, you know, could take months to really like dive into. Um, I know we had uh, the privilege of working on this for what guys like a total of probably 16 weeks, but really eight weeks was when we really dove in, um, because we spent two classes, uh, and we did like, um, uh, a little bit of a fast tracked program, uh, that we were in, but nonetheless, we spent, uh, a, a monumentous time, um, uh, just, you know, diving through research, reading um, everything that we can find about uh, just the different areas and spaces um, and, and um, all of the, the, just the research really um, about our different topics. Um, so I can talk a little bit about the space that I uh, researched, which was harm reduction. Uh, that was the pillar that that I felt, uh, honestly, that was the pillar that I felt most passionate about, that we really needed um, more more research and, and, and really like 
more research to to understand the reasoning why we need harm reduction services across the board uh, in our country. Um, and obviously, you know, I'm in Kentucky. I don't know if I said that earlier or not, but I'm in Kentucky and um, we were actually one of the first uh, states in the southern region of the country to implement um, harm reduction services uh, across our state. So uh, I know it's pretty it's pretty amazing. It was in 2016 when we passed a bill um, that that gave access to uh, naloxone, um, syringe exchange services, uh, the Good Samaritan law. So like a lot of different services that you know Kentucky had never had before. But also like, how could they not? Because then you guys get hit pretty big with with opioid like pretty. Yeah, big. we had um, this. We were. Number two for a long time and number three also uh, for the highest rates of overdose deaths in the country. Uh, we also have number, we were number one. I think we're still at like up there at one or three um, for the highest rates of hepatitis C um, and, um, you know, and, and, and some other uh, 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 illnesses um, as a result of, of syringe sharing. Um, so, you know, and, and that really led to, you know, some of these expansive laws. So, and it, it was a, it was a double-edged sword, right? Like, thank goodness, but at the same time, it, it really sucks, right? Um, like, we definitely don't want to be number one in this area. Like, out of all things in the universe, this is what we're number one at. Um, so it was a very unfortunate thing, but at the same time, you know, thank goodness that we were able to expand these services. Um, however, you know, that kind of also leads into like some of my findings, right? So, uh, one of the thing that, one of the things that I found, uh, in my research was that access to naloxone is so different in various across states. Uh, I think there was like 48 states, 47 states that have access to naloxone, um, however, they vary like the accessibility, right? So some folks can go into any like CVS and get Narcan. Yay for you. Not everybody has that. Some people actually have to go to a doctor and get a prescription and that's the only way you can get it. Some people, uh, there, are, there are only a couple of states and I don't have them in front of me at this very second. I wish I did. A couple of states um, don't have access at all. Um, so, you know, you... Um, have to go through several different hoops in order to get access. Uh, you also have uh, states that um, you could get um, Narcan from uh, community organizations, right? So you have like a standing order, um, let the doctor, you know, basically signed off and that community organization, like a, a, a harm reduction coalition, for example, can dispense uh, naloxone. Um, so it's still, there's still some hoops, like you have to have a doctor that will sign up, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that, that's still, there's still a lot of barriers, right? Because people have to go see these organizations. They can't just go to the pharmacy. There was only a handful. And when I say a handful, I'm saying like maybe 13 states that had access um, to, to uh, naloxone just by walking into a pharmacy. Um, but most other states, you have to have, um, you have to be trained. You have to have some sort of doctor that would prescribe it. Um, or, or something, you know, like that. So there was still a lot of barriers to, to access to Narcan there. Um, and as you know, and as, you know, we've discovered in the last, um, you know, few months, uh, the CDC came out a report with a report that said, you know, over, um, um, how many people that had died, uh, last year, uh, was it 93,000, I think, um, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the, the number, uh, right now, um, but there was, I will fact check in just a sec. 
<laughs> um, I appreciate that uh, because there's so much, so much. Um, but there were, you know, the the amount of lives that were lost and the lives that are lost right now. Uh, I have lost at least three people that I've known for the last in the past week. Um, week, y'all. Um, and wow. people that, you know, an, of an accidental overdose that was completely accidental, could have been reversed if they had access to Narcan. Thank you, Candace, 93,000. That's, I see, I thought that that's what it was, but I wanted to make sure I didn't want to misstep um, on that because those lives are important. Um, th those lives are the reason that we have these discussions right now because they shouldn't, it was completely accidental and, and could have been reversed, right? Like these are, um, and why harm reduction is so important. Like, yeah. I just I want to say, I don't want to cut you off too long, but like, I think there's some good work being made around um, reducing stigma around recovery and addiction, but like harm reduction is very stigmatized. And it is you know, like for a lot of people, they need treatment to get better. Has anybody navigated healthcare? It's hard. Like it takes time yes. and you need to have ways to keep people safe while they navigate into the systems of care that are going to support them in sustaining their recovery. So if they need access to syringes and access to naloxone, like we need to support that so that they can stay alive while they, because it is, it's like, you don't just wake up and you're like, I'm going to go to $30,000 treatment today. <laughs> right. And not just that, but like people can't recover if they're dead. Right. That's it. You know? And, and I, and I mean, and it is just that cut and dry um, because, you know, um, our society, as we just discussed, right. All of the pieces that are, that makes up our society and, and the societal peer pressures and, and just the culture, um, you know, it isn't built to empower recovery or empower holistic health, right? It, a lot of it centers around a lot of really unhealthy things. Um, so how do we support people that are in this sort of space that have these needs, right? Um, and, and, and the, and reduction really helps to, to give those stepping stones to increasing safety, increasing health, um, and keeping them safe until they are ready, until they can find recovery until, you know, they, they make that decision that, you know, now is the time or, you know, um, whatever it is for that person, you know, right. and, um, at the end of the day, it's, it's just about keeping them safe. Um, and, and, and also, and there's a lot of other like community components that, you know, really showcase how harm reduction is effective at saving lives, uh, keeping costs of healthcare down, um, community, um, um, what, like uh, uh, emergency use. Um, so like having yeah. places like uh, safe consumption sites, which are completely illegal and banned in the United States. Um, you know, there is so much research outside of the United States because it's illegal here um, that show that like um, uh, the, the use of emergency vehicles, which are so expensive, by the way, um, that like they'll decrease by like 63% around just, just in the general vicinity of those places that have safe consumption sites and, and, wow. and safe consumption wow. services. Like, oh, like 63%. And I mean, you can't even like wrap your mind around right. it. That means like over half of the services that was getting reported 
is no longer reported because they are receiving those services at the site. So that means mm-hmm. 63% of people, less people are dying, you know, like, can we, can we wrap our minds around that number? Right. Right. Um, so, I mean, that's like, it's just a huge thing, but yet they're banned in the United States, right. Because of, well, other things. Uh, so there should be, uh, more research, right. Uh, and, and, in case studies, and I know like that's such a hard thing, especially for like our politicians and policymakers to wrap our minds around. Right. Because um, these are things that are um, they're not sexy, you know, and they're not um, um, things that you can like really stand behind and, and, and have a lot of passion about um, politically because it, it is very controversial. But um, at the end of the day, like these are these are people's lives, you know, and, and um, they they have a a data-driven history of working, right? There are things that we have in place in this country that don't work at all. Data shows it doesn't work at all, and yet it's still in place. Um, and and I, it blows my mind. And there are some prevention programs that I won't say directly, but and maybe I should, um, but they don't work. Like data has proven that, in fact, it actually harms people, doesn't help people. Um, but yet here we are, um, and they, they still use these programs um, and, and, you know, but they're not effective. So what are the things that we can do to help advocate um, for, for these policy changes or for these pilot projects or whatever, right? Like write your policymaker. Um, so like, and I know, again, right, safe consumption sites are, are very controversial, even in um, the recovery space, advocates and allies, um, because people don't understand it, right? Um, and here's the bottom line, like people are going to use, people are going to use, um, and that's, that's what's going to happen. Right. Um, we, we've, we have shifted some, some viewpoints and some, um, understandings of, um, uh, stigma, like the, just the, how stigmatized, uh, harm reduction and Narcan is, for example, and, uh, syringe, uh, exchange sites. And, and now people have seen how effective those things are, right? Like how HIV rates have decreased, how hepatitis C rates have decreased, um, how um, uh, medical costs uh, and, and like the medical costs within the hospital have decreased as a result of having like these services available because people are no longer having like, you know, uh, infections and, and lots of different things that are like side effects of sharing uh, 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 supplies uh, and, and that sort of thing, right? Like we've seen these decreases in, in these things, this data that showcases that we think these things work. Um, but we're still really hesitant to make that like really progressive step into this new space of safe consumption sites uh, or safe consumption um, um, facilities. Um, but the data shows that, you know, the, the, the impact of having these things uh, in the surrounding community um, are, are, are huge, huge. Right. The impacts are huge, right? Because then people will no longer just be, you know, out in the street alone, People right. can, can receive services immediately. People will know where to go, where, where they can be uh, supported, uh, foster development, um, and, and ensure that there is emergency, emergency personnel available, right? Um, and, and, and keep people alive. Um, and they're not just going to be out in your local neighborhood, in the parking lot, or in the alley, or in the restroom at McDonald's, and I hate to say that, but that's true. Um, or you know, some of these other places. You know what I mean? Where where we know that these instances occur, we know that they do, and they're gonna happen. 
So why don't we create these spaces where, you know, there's this in-between space where people can go, they can be safe. Um, and also like, you know, whenever they're ready for help, they can get it. Uh, and they can get it right then. You don't have right. to wait, right? Like you just said, navigating healthcare is 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 terrible. It's a nightmare. How can we streamline process? Well, guess what, guys? This is it. This is it. This <laughs> right. is how to streamline. You 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 take it to them, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and meet you know, people I mean, where they're at, like quite literally meet people. Quite where they're literally. At. <laughs> Yes. And it's so controversial again, but, you know, um, like I said, the data shows it's effective and it works and it saves the taxpayers so much money because mm-hmm. then EMS, guess what? They're going to be going to the guy who, you know, has, a, you know, who, who unfortunately has a heart attack and needs emergency services now, uh, instead of going to somewhere who someone is experiencing an overdose because, um, you know, their family walked in or what have you, uh, instead of going to those visits, because guess what? That person is going to go to a safe consumption facility and there's going to be a nurse right there readily available if that if something were to happen mm-hmm. um because otherwise the, the other situation and scenario is going to happen um and yeah. they may not make it you know ems yeah. may not be there and there's a whole you know slew and ripple effect of that um so, and I know I've spent a lot of time talking about harm reduction, so I'm going to, I'm going to stop. Uh, so that way we can talk about some of the other pillars, but, um, you know, I really wanted to drive home <laughs> that, um, that. So I get passionate. Resource. I get passionate about it. I lost my best friend for, to an overdose in my house yeah. in 2013. Uh, I didn't know about naloxone. I don't think it was really talked about, you know, like I get fired up about harm reduction because I would be so happy to have my friends here still. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sidebar, but, sidebar real quick. I got to just say this. I do it almost on all of our meetings. If you're watching or listening, you know, whether if you're in California, it's easy to get these services just real quick. If you have any questions, like how do I do that? I'm going to give you a 10 second. You can get these, reach out to YPR, find a chapter near you and see if we supply these our harm reduction center. It's super easy. You literally open it up. There's a kit right here. It shows you how to do it. This could save a life. It's as easy as a nose spray and it blocks the receptors. So that's a different topic for a different day, but go to YPR on, on social media, on Facebook, click on groups, find a group near you or a harm reduction center near you. And let's get you some trainings. We have trainings all over the, 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 the every chapter. Uh, we do them all over. So if you want to do a virtual training, reach out to YPR. How can I get involved? If we don't have one, we know who does and we can help you out there. That's all I want to say. Absolutely. Thanks, Jesse. Yeah. My bad, Candace. No, it's okay. I was just really like, yeah, agreeing with Tara on kind of because it is one of one of out of all the pillars, I feel like, you know, uh our country is starting to have more compassion towards addiction. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, that is sad. But then when we start to talk about harm reduction, people are like, eh. Right. It's like right. a, I yeah, feel like it's we, a tough one. getting so. more um, bipartisan. I feel like it's not a, uh, this or that aisle. I feel like finally we're making some headway to where both political sides are like, we have this issue. Let's, this is bipartisan. Mm-hmm. And so I will say we have gained ground, but we still have much ground to gain. I think you guys oh, yeah. Well, um, so you all, uh, yeah. This is going to be all season, <laughs> uh, but I do want to hear from both uh, Danielle and Renisha. Uh, so I don't know. We'll just kind of go like I know each of you sort of had topics that you really dug into. So 
I don't know. Let's start with Danielle. Like with, uh, with these eight pillars, where was your focus? So my focus was in uh, criminal justice and um, the judicial system, um, specifically on rates of recidivism, because it's a revolving door, how when substance use does not end in incarceration and, you know, the crime that they committed most likely stemmed from their substance use disorder. And substance use actually happens in incarceration. Jesse and I just had a podcast. uh, We we didn't touch upon the rampant drunk problem in, in, you know, in jail and prisons, but it is around them and it, it doesn't stop when you enter that realm. Um, But these people aren't getting services at all. And so then they go like immediately into um, like detox and they're, they're not helped. And I found data that um, if your cellmate is suffering and they could have gotten um, a type of substance in the jail, um, your cellmate won't do anything if you're having a negative reaction or overdosing at all because they are so afraid of the adverse effects that are going to happen to them in jail. Are they going to get more time added on their sentence? Are they going to get jumped by someone in jail because it's a lawless land (laughs) and there's, there's nothing to be done? Like, and then we have like these amazing drug courts that are supposed to help, but yet you have the population of people that go into court. Um, I'm sorry, that go into jail. It's not captured in the same way of the people who are selected to go into drug court. Mm. So if you have a substance use disorder and you're in jail, you're not automatically going to get into a jail that has some tor- some type of program. So you're not capturing the right people. And we don't know why there's not enough evidence um, looked at. There's not enough data to understand why that's happening. Um, what I really found that stood out to me was that if you are white, Caucasian, you are more likely to be selected for drug court just by being that race just by not being black or brown why is that um black and brown people also suffer why are they not given the same shot as someone who is white or caucasian it doesn't match and it doesn't make any sense and it keeps this terrible cycle of injustice i'm gonna give you some real data right now and i'm danielle uh uh, here you go. I'm a drug court, DUI court as well. They have DUI court and drug court here in Sacramento. And uh, I would say out of 30 people in my DUI, my drug court, 25 were white, 25 were Caucasian. So I'm, I'm giving you the clear data as somebody who was in there. You're absolutely correct. And I absolutely agree based off the evidence of my personal life. And uh, yeah, that's the truth. As soon as you said that, I was like, hmm, yeah, she's absolutely right. So Thanks, thanks for that, and that's right. And, but right. how do we change that? What do we do? Do we do we bring it to attention? What what can well, we like do? What, what can we do? Yeah, like what are the percentages of people of color that are incarcerated right. versus on these like 
uh, rehabilitation. And based off charges, program. how much more time are you getting? I, I'm, I'm obsessed with I'm, I'm formally incarcerated, and, and I share that. I don't mind sharing that on a social standpoint. And, you know, I can attest that some of my friends got caught with the same amount of substance, uh, substances and had less time than some of my, my black and brown friends. This isn't like a conspiracy theory. This is actually happening, you know, and so... Um, you know, this is a whole different topic for a different day. Again, we can write a, an encyclopedia on it, but I'm letting the listeners know and, and people in my community and my circle know it's absolutely true. You can't argue facts. You can't argue data. You can scream until you're blue in the face, but the fact remains it's happening. And uh, yeah. it takes conversations like this to bring awareness. And so sorry. Exactly. And, and just to, you know, eliminate that point, right? Like Danielle was just talking about, like, there's not, the thing is that there isn't data that showcased um uh, some uh, like some of these numbers right like we like it just doesn't exist or why not, uh, Darren, really why not? <laughs> i know i know right like uh and, and you know and, and my biggest thing is that you know i'm an advocate for transparency right so like my tax dollars are paying for these centers and these programs so where's it going you know yeah. um so you know and that's what you can do right as constituents uh write your policymakers hey i want to know where my tax dollars are going and these jails and these centers and these facilities sure i mean we can talk about counties and stuff like that um but you know there, there's also the issues of like private prisons which are a whole nother animal we ain't even getting into it. like renatia uh hard to you uh because <laughs> i just saw your face uh and if we are watching this on video uh in, in season two uh y'all will see it but uh, i mean th these are real right I like, um, and, and because these are, you know, things that are supported and paid for by tax dollar money, I mean, constituents, that's what you can do. You know, you need to start asking questions um, and, and, and um, push for transparency um, and, and, uh, and efficacy, right? Because uh, we need to know like what's happening and why people are not getting the, the help that they need, especially when somebody does come in with a substance use disorder uh, or is in, incarcerated because of what I say, like symptoms of um, their substance use disorder, right? Like people like are stealing. Well, they're stealing for a reason, guys. Um, you know, and, and, and I'm not saying that everybody who steals has a substance use disorder by any measure but like there's something else going on right are they homeless are they suffering from homelessness or you know um are they experiencing homelessness like what's going on right uh there's always going to be an underlying thing and you know some people you know just you know and some people break the law and, and you know i'm not arguing with that statement either right but um there's got to be some things and, and some policies and some practices in place that help to to really decipher and figure out what's really going on with some of these people and i just don't think that we do a good job of doing it uh, and that's because we don't collect data we don't try to figure it out and so we just throw people in jail sometimes um and that's that's it. And, and especially when we have a society that doesn't show compassion um, and, and we incarcerate and, and the drug war is the, the biggest uh, perpetuator of this systemic problem. Um, and, and with that, I'm going to pass it back to Danielle, who studied this area. <laughs> um, I just, you know, I know where I'm just being conscious of time. Um, I think the biggest message is, you know, we need more drug courts. 100% and you do need to contact your politicians. And the message is that this is a public health problem, not a criminal issue. Like that, that is the whole meat and potatoes of it. That, you know, 100%. that you gotta, you gotta give help. Punishment is not going to work in this case. Right. So, 
Well, it's like, you know, and the help needs to be equitable as well. Exactly. You know, you can't yes. leave um, whole communities of people out, um, you know, because they don't, you know, look like you or, mm-hmm. you know, whoever that you deem important. So yeah, the help that comes also needs to be equitable. Um, my topics <laughs> to segue to that while, while we keep our time, um, I don't really need to say much about housing because that to me, again, it's kind of under the umbrella of, of a harm reduction. I think I talked a lot about housing first initiatives um, and housing first, for those of you who may not be familiar is essentially just providing housing to people um, who may not be in recovery yet um, that are a different stage in that journey um, or at the beginning stage, the pre-stage, whatever label you wanna put on it, um, that they're not recovered yet and they just need a roof over their head, a safe roof over their head. Um, you know, we, we are hierarchy of needs. We need three things, food, shelter, and, you know, and uh, I forgot what the third thing off my head, but it's important. Um, but we're gonna, you know, folks, <laughs> We times first people will think, oh, okay, so you're putting, you're just giving um, a oh, I hope my connection's fine. Are you guys hearing me? Okay, okay, just one. It, it had a message that it wasn't stable, so it broke um, up for a second, but you're all good now. Good, got it. Um, so, you know, we, I think that some people think that we're enabling, you know, to put somebody who is still currently using into free housing. But, you know, what you don't realize is that that person, that is just one less stress thing that that person has to worry about on their journey to recovery. They don't have to worry about um, the streets that are unsafe and whether they're going to face any violence while they're just out there, um, you know, just trying to survive and deal with this substance use disorder. Um, And yeah, so I, like I said, there's just so much to go into that. I really encourage people to read the report um, about that. I also want to segue into recovery support, which is kind of thinking holistically about recovery in general and looking at recovery not as an acute treatment, not for something that is short-term and finite, but an open-ended um, recovery system and that is going to last over that person's whole lifetime and offer individualized service over that person's whole lifetime, not just short-term detox. Um, and then that also kind of requires society as a whole, again, to rethink what is addiction and how do we support people who are struggling with that and struggling to recover from that. Um, how do we change again our mindsets, whether we are a person who is an ally or wants to be an ally to somebody who's in recovery, to somebody who's struggling with addiction? How do we change the way that we think about them, how we speak to them, what kind of programs um, we try to create for them, what kind of events we try to include them on, um, what ways can we support them that gets them less stressed and again it's just one less thing to worry about as they're recovering 
Um, and my last section was education. I mentioned it earlier with the, um, the high school and the collegiate recovery communities. And um, one thing that stuck out to me was that these programs are very successful. It's, it is significantly, it made a significant difference for people in these, um, for young people in these school systems to have specialized support from peers who are also in recovery from even their own professors that might also be in recovery and helping them through their struggles. Hey, I know, I, I know what you're going through. I was at that point in one point in my life and here's how I got through it. You will too. Here's what we have to help you. Um, you know, not to say that everybody knows everyone's experience because everybody's experience is different and what they struggle with is different, but to have people that are still just, you know, so understand um, and have that like goal of just staying sober while you are learning, while you're trying to better yourself, become a professional, um, get jobs, get degrees. Um, and not only do did the studies, the data showed that those students did better um, academic wise, of course, but they also had higher rates of sobriety. Like that's just, that's, amazing, you know, because some of the other studies um, in the sections, like for housing, for instance, you know, could show they didn't have any direct links to lower rates of sobriety. They could just lessen the severity of the of the addiction, which means that the person is using less amounts and they're using less often, but they're not necessarily um, going all the way into sobriety, whereas recovery uh, school communities are showing that data, that it is a difference in sobriety rates there as well. So, um, you know, I, I just, I really enjoyed doing this project. I just thought it was wonderful. I was so grateful that this is the topic that we got to work on. I was glad it also kind of felt like we were cheating a little bit because Tara was VP. So, you know, <laughs> it helped, you know, because we did that night. <laughs> yeah. Tara does everything all the way, like. Yeah, there's no half assing with Tara. It's like I want to give a shout out real quick off topic. Mm -hmm. I want to give a shout out to Tara when I first started here. Um, yeah. uh, you know, it's a shaky, scared little probably in Sacramento. I don't even think I met you on virtual yet, but you knew I was new. Tara knew I was new. I introduced myself and she was like, let's go eat and didn't even know me. So Tara, like this is something that you don't just do like on video. Tara really engages people in real life. And so I, I, I remember after that, I'm like, this is the company I want to work for. When you have leadership mm -hmm. like that, we sat and we added some like, it was like a makeshift Chipotle, but it wasn't really Chipotle. But uh, thank you for that, for the engaging and sitting down and eating dinner. We had a good time. And, and I love YPR. I love uh, everything mm -hmm. that YPR does. And um, so thank you, Tara. Mm -hmm. Shout out to you. But real quick, I know we're closing on time. I would love to just briefly discuss, and then I'll hand it back over to Candace. Um, it's a passion of mine. You talked about it, Renisha, you know, housing first, that model, and why that's important. It's like, and then for me, uh, with the with the Sacramento chapter, I've, I'm a lot, uh, I'm really involved with Tay Housing, T-A-Y, that's transitional age youth here in Sacramento, California. I'm not sure what it's called, different states, but it's the same thing. And so they get services from 18 to 25, and it's a housing first model and it's called low border communities and what that means is come as you are whether you have a mental health diagnosis whether you have a substance use diagnosis whether you're at where, wherever you are in the dsm right um, awesome. come, on, come on in 
here's housing. We have a little tiny house village. They made um, <laughs> little homes and tough sheds into homes. And, and really the only AOD services they have is YPR. And so um, we've, we've, we've really hit these areas, but it's just so crucial with housing first. Um, a lot of programs, they say you have to get a, and I'm gonna paraphrase, of course, words matter here at YPR, I'm paraphrasing. We need you to have a week of clean time before we can even do an assessment before you come into programming. And it's just, uh, it's a horrible thing to say. And, I, and every program has its flavor and I get that, um, but I'm so glad at least we are, we are now stepping into this portion where it's like low border communities, housing first. And then also once they get there, making sure that they have an outlet that we're just not housing to, uh, to house, but we make sure we provide these resources. So if you wanna, however you wanna touch on this, some of you guys, if you have a housing first module where you live, I mean, you have a, a rapid rehousing, just talk about the benefits of that. Anybody? Um, I, I'm sorry, if I can't you speak to that. Maybe you, maybe you don't have them. Yeah, I, mean, I, I can just speak to, to where I live, so I am not sure yet. Um, it's okay. <laughs> I would I know I did study read up upon a lot of the ones in California like as I was doing yeah. um the housing section so and I'll like, say you already too, know that so. I'll say too you know like it should like a, a qualifier for housing shouldn't be whether or not somebody is is in recovery or substance right. free um you know uh I did and I don't think that people should have their lives disrupted if they do have like a reoccurrence, right? Uh, so if somebody, you know, experiences a reoccurrence of use, that doesn't mean you should throw them out in the street, right? Because that just right. perpetuates the problem. Like that doesn't help them. Um, that's just sends them packing. And then they're, you know, then then they're even in even a, a, a worse like situation, yeah. right? Like everything is situational. Um, then, you know, they're out in the street. They, they may not have anywhere to go. They may have this, their stuff packed up in a box right. somewhere, you know? So, I mean, it just may, it, it perpetuates the problem. Um, and, and, you know, the, that's the reason why like these services, like we talked about housing first. Yeah, housing first is a amazing um but if you don't have like the services that uh are in the recovery blueprint for example right. um right. if we don't have like those other services that help to like support having the housing and then if that person has a reoccurrence if they can go into treatment or if they can right. get recovery support or if they can utilize harm reduction right. you know like there are right. so many different pieces that you need in order for that person to sustain and thrive in their recovery Bingo. and if you don't have them you know then that's when you know we have these really archaic policies like let's just throw them out in the street because they can't right. um you know, there it's detrimental to our right. our program because this one person, you know, had a reoccurrence, and then it can mm -hmm. affect the other people, which I get. But right. like, let's let's be honest here. Like, there are there are systems in place outside of that housing that that person can utilize, and it doesn't require you to have to throw them out in the street. And that's right. you know, like that's what it. And that, that's yeah. that's the that's the society that's the cultural norm that we have today, and it's very yeah. unfortunate. That that's what it is. Yeah, ahead, I Anisha. can't speak to anything um, in Indiana yet because again, I just moved here. But I I moved from Tennessee, and I do remember shortly before I left that there, and it was a big controversy because I I'm not exactly sure if it was exactly housing first, but I know it was at least in the spirit of that type of model where there was a housing community built to home, to house homeless people um, and did not put stipulations at, as far as I know um, upon sobriety. I could be wrong about that, but I just remember them interviewing 
um, one of the residents there. And again, it was big controversy because this is uh, houses specifically to, to house homeless people. And as we know, it's very likely that, you know, a lot of these people probably had um, addiction, a struggle with addiction at some point, um, right. whether they were still doing it or in recovery. And the neighborhoods around them did not want them there. Um, right. But this, I will never forget the lady just talking about just how having that roof just changed her life and how she was able to get back on track to take care of herself and take care of her health because she had a lot of health issues um, before, but just being able to have a roof over her head that was paid for and was safe, um, you know, just gave her the ability to take care of herself. And right. um, the study that I mentioned in our paper uh, was out in, it was done in Colorado, but the number that it produced, I think it was like thir over 31,000 per person from a housing first in initiative that is saving taxpayer money. So multiply that, you know, if that could be replicated nationwide, multiply that times the thousands of people, you know, who, who are struggling with substance use. And I mean, that's so much money and, and not to just save money just for the hell of it, but like, that means that that's money freed up to help us with other things that we right. need. Right, exactly. That could be used in other spaces to support people in recovery, exactly. you know, and at the end of the day, guys, like, like here, and here's my, my tidbit here, because at the end of the day, like, this is about supporting communities, right. and supporting people, right? Uh, we're, we're taxpayers, every single person. I, and I don't care whether you, you know, like we, we live in some states where people may not get the right to vote back because they have felonies on their record or whatever. Mm -hmm. And there's like a lot of other stuff, right? But every person, if you have a job and even if you don't have a job, if you get a disability, you are paying taxes. So we are yeah. all taxpayers here. Uh, so, you know, we have, we have a sense, we have a duty, um, to make sure that we are, you know, able to, to have these services and get these services. And, you know, and, and we're talking about creating communities that support people in general, yeah. to, for our communities to thrive. And that and means just, that everybody wins, guys. Everybody wins. Right. Everybody not just, wins. Not just communities in the community, but communities in the community like these places I'm talking about. Right. Just, just just these these communities. And I think, you know, you said it right in the head, like making impact, impact um, you know, in these places that, hey, the reason why they may be houseless is because maybe a substance use, is that being addressed and are they being offered support, I think is the main part and the main uh, crucial piece of what we need to do in our in our private community. So we can keep talking about that uh, over and over. I'm gonna hand it back to Candace. I yeah. know she has a question. Yeah, go ahead, Candace. I Rose, do got a us, question, but yeah, that's take us home. Like each of these pillars could have its own seasons. Um, <laughs> Maybe we I just have that, like a episode per pillar. <laughs> we might well, have an episode two, part two. Well, we'll come. Yeah, let's chat. We'll come back. I think we should come back to this. But yeah, we are we running should. out of time. I just want to say because I think it's important to say and for people to hear. You know, speaking to the amount of money that gets spent. Um, like for instance, we have a high barrier shelter here where uh, people can reside there for up to six weeks. Uh, they can even apply for extended stay, I think up to three months. Um, nice. But if they show up one time under the influence, they are removed oh, onto the streets and then they mm. are not eligible for another 30 days. Mm. So what I see, um, what I've seen in the past, what happens with these folks, uh, we live in Colorado, I live in Colorado. They get booted out on the street in the middle of February 
it's freezing, these folks end up like intoxicating themselves to levels where they have to be seen at the emergency department and then admitted into detox. These are taxpayer dollars that are not being well allocated. That's our law enforcement first responders going to like rescue these folks and get them into the emergency department. Um, so it is like, you know, people are like, I don't want to spend my taxpayer dollars on uh, low barrier shelters. It's like, you are paying your tax dollars. They are just not effective. Like let's allocate them to more effective yeah. solutions. And, and it's going to be more expensive on the back end. It nice. is. It is like emergency services. Like I, I, I'm sure everybody knows going to the doctor is expensive y'all. And you know, uh, it is so different for people who do not have medical insurance. Matter of fact, it's worse. Um, so, you know, uh, and that's, that's coming out of, of, of public, uh, mm-hmm. funding, you know, that's where that comes from. So, and, yeah. and people wonder why yeah. the potholes aren't getting fixed. Uh, well, let's, let's talk about what, where your money's going. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to say that I tried to like, say that to as many people as possible. It's like the whole argument of that. These are my tax dollars. It's like, yeah, no, you, you are, you know, you are already spending your tax dollars this way. It's just, it's not solution. It's like a band-aid and really getting it is. wasted. So, um, but yeah, we do need to start wrapping up. I would love to get you ladies back on the show. We'll have to like connect and maybe, yeah. Cause I feel like we only just barely breached the surface <laughs> of, of the topics that we did get into. We're going we're gonna to do it again. We're we'll going to do it again. But I want to ask, I'm going to ask this collectively. So maybe you can each sort of just like put your piece into it. But um, here at Recovery Corner, we always ask our guests, uh, what does recovery mean to you? I'll go first. So I, for me, it's, it's a community that's thriving. Um, yeah. Nice. Um, as again, as an ally with the secondhand perspective of what recovery is, um, I think recovery is reconnection and reintegration um, in with the community um, that is fully supportive and so that you can thrive. To piggyback off of this, there you go. Um, it's, you know, a safety net, it's support that if you have, you know, a relapse or something that you're not looked down upon, you know, mm-hmm. that this is a path and it's not linear and mm-hmm. people are human and we need to be number one supportive and get them the tools that they need to have a sustainable life. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Very beautiful oh, ladies. Uh, thank you so much for the work that you did on this project. Yes. And thank you for being here to talk about it. One second before we close, as always, Miss Candace. Before we close, I want to give you guys an opportunity to shout out an agency or just anything you want to plug. Maybe you're like, check out me on my IG. I don't care, whatever <laughs> you know, whatever you want to plug. Uh, plug a person, place, or thing uh, before we close, or anything that you might might be important for you guys. I'll start with uh, Renisha. Um, 
Um, well, I'm going to plug what my current role is right now. And uh, especially if you're listening and you live in the state of Indiana, go to the Indiana State uh, website and look up the Indiana Connectivity Program. Register your community for that portal so that if your community, especially if you are in an underserved or unserved area, um, you register and get uh, internet service providers hopefully bidding to go to take some of this government money that they're just shelling out there and uh, give you guys some internet and so connect you to our world and do great things with it so yeah good plug good plug good plug and Ella um so I'm gonna say you know I I'm from the progressive state of New York and I, I love the state that I'm in and uh, even New York is now changing and um, one of the biggest um, agencies that we have is the out the office of addiction services and supports which used to be called the office of alcohol and substance um, use disorders so the name is already changing and it is all about addiction and service and supports there's lots of trainings on how to administer um, naloxone and you know, you you always have a friend in New York. Nice. Oh, I love that. <laughs> oh, and I guess I'm last. Um, so I would say, well, number one, if there are um, university officials or teachers or uh, harm reduction um, enthusiasts or um housing first enthusiasts or anything um if you are looking for data and research check out the young people in recovery.org website uh our um analysis is is on the home page you just scroll down and look for american university report that it's us um it is well cited um and i hope that you know folks utilize it um because we did put in a lot of work uh, and and you know just to say, you know, we are not experts in this field. However, we are research. Um, and so we, you know, did our due diligence and everything is cited. And, um, you know, it was also overseen by American University. So, um, and their, their practicum team of professors and et cetera. Um, and I work in this space, but nonetheless, um, I hope that this, you know, this research and this policy analysis really gets used. Um, so that, that, that would be my dream um, because I think, you know, we just highlighted so many things. Um, right. so, so please, nice. please look at it. Look at the document, look at the research at uh, and share it. Yes. Put a link yes. in the show notes so that people yes. can click. There you go. Wonderful. Love it. Love it. Well, hey, look guys, I want to thank you so much. Renisha, Tara, Daniela, you guys are awesome. Um, yeah, I just uh, love hearing all of it. And, uh, you know, with that being said, guys, we are wrapping up. That was a great show. Um, really exciting. I can't wait till it comes out, but we always close with this once again, guys, thank you for recovery corner for listening, uh, whether it's on uh, visual or just audio. Um, I am your host from Sacramento, Jesse Hainer. And I am Candace Rose. Remember, new episodes are available to stream every other Wednesday as early as 5 a.m. Eastern time. So tune in next time. As always, here at YPR, we do recover and we are in your corner. Thanks yes. for listening. Bye, guys. Peace. Nice.